0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 70. We're 70. 70 years old. Of Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, everything in the whole world, has its own history,
1: like dogs, chairs, or even, James, love. Oh, absolutely. Or smoke, the yoke, the poke, um, <laughs> the beat, the street, and the treat. I'll leave you to ponder. <laughs> The history of the beat. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of chairs is all about royalty, childbirth, salt water, and executions. Or that the history of hats is about Churchill, Nelson and Abraham Lincoln. Ooh, they've all all got distinctive hats. It's also about beavers and witches.
0: (laughs) Nice. I, I went for a walk with Geronimo this morning and I saw the most extraordinary chair in um, in a field, which I will not tell you about now, because I'm going to tell you about in our podcast on chairs. Oh, good. Which is not this one. I look forward to it. Um, because we take our turns, don't we, with uh, what Certainly we're talking do. about. And um, this week we're going to be talking about recipes. But anyway, the man sitting opposite me, he's the Thomas Edison of historical
1: sparks. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me, and I've already mentioned your name, the man sitting opposite me is the king of content. It's the famous... Face- famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Thank you very much and hello everyone. So this week, this was
0: inspired slightly by a podcast we did on lists. Yes. um, Which came after Christmas because we realised that everyone was doing extraordinary shopping lists for Christmas and lists of presents and then there were going to be lists for New Year's resolutions and all sorts of things. So we put our heads together and thought that list was very interesting but a there's a particular
1: type of list which we wanted to do, and that is the recipe. Uh, recipes are something very, very dear to my heart. Why is that? In lots of ways. Uh, two ways. Yes. Two main ways. Um, one, um, I'm a total foodie.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: uh, well, I didn't know hu- that. You did know that. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge part of my life is mm-hmm. collecting recipes. And cookbooks, I have a, I mean, you know, not an extraordinary amount of cookbooks compared to real collectors, but I've got several hundred cookbooks. And I and I cut out, on a, or I used to cut out when I had time, on a weekly basis, recipes, and then would put them in folders and organise them.
0: I'm starting to think, James, that if allowed loose, you would collect everything.
1: Yes. <laughs> but also, um, research. I work on the early modern period uh, and have worked on women and gender, and the recipe book or the receipt book is a very important uh, historical resource, which I'll talk about later for on for the history of women, for, t- for, the, for the history of women, for the history of medicine, it must for, the be history for the history of the history of men as well. There must be yep. male yep. chefs in so, the past, but also the receipt book. It's not just about food recipes. It's also about medical recipes ah. and all sorts of all sorts of things. Every, a lot of production would have happened within the household. So a lot of medical production would have happened within the household. A lot of cooking preparation yeah. would have happened in the household. So people are keeping notes on all of this. And there are some amazing manuscript and printed volumes that survive. It's essentially the, this the
0: early history of manufacture as well, isn't it? It's yes. people yes. making stuff yes. out of very yes. basic ingredients. And I think it's something that... It really defines us as human, Yeah, actually. We can, we can put stuff together in a crazy mix and make something truly yeah. magical and very yeah. different. But we can also write it down, we can record it we, for yeah. posterity, we could pass it
1: on, we can improve exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's also, about, it's also about scientific experimentation ah. and discovery, yeah. um, all of those sort of things. You know, it just, it just explodes. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about things we haven't got recipes for. <laughs> I'm going to be talking Which about. Which is a fascinating his part of the I history there is. I brought along my, one of my favourite cookbooks. Wow. Uh, La Rousse. Okay, I know nothing um, about La this. La Rousse is, sort of, it, this is the sort I'm of. This is the. I'm not a foodie, sta- I'm the opposite this is, of This a is the standard uh, French cookbook. Okay. This is like the Bible. Of, I mean, if you think about the sort of the history of the cookbook, my God, it's called it's called the world's greatest yes. cookery <laughs> the encyclopedia. The, uh, That's a big. Larousse cool. gastronomique. Oh. I mean, the other 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 countries have their own sort of um, what what you probably call definitive national cookbooks. So, if you think about Italy, mm-hmm. Italy Silver Spoon is one of the sort of. The the go-to cookbooks. I think there's there's an equivalent in Spain, America. Uh, the US gourmet cookbook is one of the sort of standards. I was trying to think what the sort of definitive cookbook would be in the UK. I mean, because somebody like um, Delia Smith is kind of you know okay. is a little yeah. too sort of lowbrow. Yeah. You know because this is sort of this is sort of high. Cuisine.
0: This idea of national cookbooks, though, is really yeah. interesting. So I mean, you yeah. said to be an American cookbook. Yeah. I mean, what does that? Wouldn't, mean? I, wouldn't. I wouldn't know where to. Betty Crocker, or but then, as in, as in, super traditional, super white... traditional. What do you mean? So, I mean, so what it would be? Not, not it would
1: be a Mexican, it be... not Italian, not Spanish. No, but it would be a cookbook that would encompass all of the national dishes of a country and all the regional variations. Um, yeah. That probably, would, you know, that probably would be increasingly global, yeah. reflecting all the sort of influences that are that are coming in. But if you think about the history of the cookbook, um, you know, I think some of the earliest cookbooks that survive. I mean, uh, of course, these are these are manuscript and, and you know in various forms come from Babylonia in sixteen hundred BC. We've got Egyptian, ancient Greek, ancient Roman, Arabic, medieval. Texts. Uh, one of the earliest English cookbooks is a book called *The Form of Curry*, 1390. Wow. Uh, commissioned by Richard II. It's not about curry. Curry here mean basically means cooking. Uh, you then think about the. We get a lot of manuscript cookbooks in the 15th century, the 16th and 17th century. You've got lots of the sort of aristocratic households, gentry households, all vying with each other to sort of produce the the sort of most luxurious meals and honing those recipes. It's a status thing as
0: well, isn't it? So so the, the, the rich people aren't doing the cooking themselves. No. They have people cooking for them. But they have people them.
1: who they commission to do the, you know, to produce these, these books for them.
0: And it must be linked with
1: literacy. So you yep. may be a very, Absolutely. very good cook. Yep. But unable to write, and it's, unable to and it's how, it's how you pass And it's how you pass that kind of tradition on. If you think about it, what we're talking about is often an oral tradition that's passed on from, say, mother to daughter. Yeah. And is often on along a sort of female line. You know, in the professional world of, of cooking, I imagine, you know, it's much more of a sort of male thing. By the 19th... To follow this trajectory on, though, by the 19th century, in certainly in, in England, you've got things like um, Mrs Beaton you know, Mrs Acton and those sort of compendious sort of yeah. books that are about household economy, you know, and then you could follow that through into people like Delia Smith and Jamie Oliver and have a look at the sort of the rise of the celebrity chef. And And it's interesting to see what people do with recipes nowadays. I have a theory about celebrity Go. chefs. I think celebrity chefs
0: are um, secret historians mm. because a lot mm-hmm. of, if you're a celebrity chef and you're making uh, you're making new cookbooks, you're making new TV shows about... whatever you're doing, you have to... We'd call it historiography as a historian. You have to be extremely aware in a very detailed and comprehensive manner of everything that's gone before so you can place your new proposal, your new way of doing things, your new recipe, yeah, um,
1: yeah. which
0: uh, in, in, in a new kind of... In a new context. In a new context, yeah. which will allow the publishers of your history books to then sell them and say, this is a new idea. So yeah. so I think all of these um, celebrity chefs... Hello, celebrity chefs out there. If you are a celebrity chef listening to this, please get in touch. But I, I suspect that they, they, um, they have this kind of subconscious awareness of themselves in a very long timeline,
1: yeah. Which, yeah.
0: which is um, it's quite rare, I think. I mean, you have to be a bit of a historian, to be able to be a celebrity chef and I'm not sure if there are any other um I'm now talking off the top of my head but there are any other professions where that is just so much the case. Mm. What do you think?
1: Give me 24 hours to think about okay, it. Yeah. But I think the thing with a lot of chefs or, or the best sort of the best cookery writers is that they do look back at a sort of trajectory of of tradition of of cooking. Yeah. Um there was one summer, oh this must have been about a decade ago when uh, my wife and i pre kids were touring the languedoc mm-hmm. and kind of and staying in all sorts of interesting places and eating all sorts of amazing food and i came across this wonderful restaurant by a canal and had the most amazing cassoulet which if you, if you've never had a cassoulet i like a cassoulet a cassoulet. A cassoulet but what this i became obsessed with cassoulet recipes and did you know that there are so many different Varieties of recipe. Just a recipe. bit of
0: bacon and some beans. No, 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 no.
1: <laughs> it is, it, it, and I, I, this is where, this is why I brought my Larousse along. Ah. So I decided that I was going to trace the stemma of uh, of the cassole. So the stemmer of a uh, of a uh, stemma stematics comes from uh, literary criticism, a particularly pedantic form of literary criticism that wants to trace different variants of, say, a poem. So you trace oh, okay, it back right, to right. its original yep. poem, and then you mm. follow it sort of the way it comes now. out. I like that. So it's brilliant. Um, but what I wanted to do was do that with a with a recipe. Ah. Um, and so the place that I go to for all wisdom about French cuisine is, of course, my La Um And apparently there is a there is a huge debate, a warfare among French cooks about the um, about the different kinds of cassoulet recipes. Now, this is a, a dish, and I quote, originally from the Languedoc, which consists of haricot, or navy beans, cooked in a stew pot with pork rinds and seasonings, a garnish of meats which varies from region to region, and gratin topping are added in the final stages. Um, the haricot beans, blah, 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 Um, Castellet is divided into three types according to the meats used. Prosper Montigny called them the Trinity, the father being the Castellet from Castel the son, the Castellet from Carcassonne, and the Holy Ghost, that from Toulouse. The first, which is undoubtedly the oldest, contains pork loin, ham, leg, sausages, and fresh rinds, which perhaps a piece of preserved with perhaps a piece of preserved goose. In Carcassonne leg of mutton, and during the shooting season partridge are used. The same ingredients are used in Toulouse, as in Castelnaudry, but in smaller quantities. The difference being made up with fresh lard, Toulouse sausage, mutton and duck or goose. And there are various other variations on that theme. So I became obsessed with that one summer. But
0: it it does kind of remind us, isn't it, that recipes can vary geographically as well as chronologically.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: I like recipes. I I don't like cooking, really. Do you not? No. um, It's not my... It's not a thing I enjoy doing. Who cooks in the house, then? Me. You. Yes. Oh, (laughs) I I dislike cooking a little bit less than my wife. (laughs) 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 Anyway, that's not to say we don't have recipe books. We have recipes. There's a lot of rustling going on here because I've got a wonderful collection of um, just kind of loose leaf um, things. So, uh, recipes as a historical source, okay? Uh, That's what I want to talk about. Go. So, here we have a very sort of basic one. This is uh, written by... I don't know, possibly my son. Best brownies. So we've got brownie recipes. We've got um, banana bread recipes that's written by my daughter. Um, so we've got a lot of things and um, it's, it's kind of encapsulating them at a, at a, it's, at a sort of particular time in their lives, which I think is really interesting. Chocolate shortbread. Now, here we go. This has been rewritten by my daughter because um, this recipe, you see, this this sings of childhood to me. Um, we used to have holidays in Cornwall, family holidays in Cornwall, and after we'd been surfing on the beach, we'd get something called chocolate shortbread, which is—it's kind of like it's not quite a brownie, and it's made out of chocolate digestives and golden syrup and
1: butter and sugar. It's completely—is it like a, millionaire shortbread? Y- yes, but caramel it's, it's not. In no, there's no, no caramel,
0: and it's not quite as intense. So you right. can eat quite a lot of this okay. stuff. Okay, good. So it's more like a, it's more like a digestive than a millionaire shortbread. Because if you have right. one piece of millionaire shortbread, you, you basically <laughs> nearly ever hold it attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, but this is much more kind of consumable. Um, Anyway, so it got given from my mum down to me. I wrote it in my terrible kind of scrappy doctor's handwriting. And uh, my daughter, uh, who is the the cook in the house, um, she got cross with it and she's rewritten it. So this was probably her writing when she was about five or six. Um, And the ingredients are dark chocolate digestives. Um, some kind of margarine, drinking chocolate powder, caster sugar and golden syrup. So I love that because that reminds me of my childhood and I'm sure that in the future it will remind my daughter of, yeah. of her childhood and particularly of being on the beach. Where do you keep them? Um, we jammed in the corner of the kitchen. OK. Um, but now, th- this this idea of, of having recipes passed down through the family brings me to this. Now, this is a recipe but it's caught up with all sorts of things. Um... And it survives in my recipe folder, but if you're a historian, there's a lot more going on here, which is why I think it's particularly interesting. Um, So here we go. Uh, This is dated 2006. March. Hmm. Hello Hmm. darling. It's a glorious sunny day here but very cold. I've just been round the block with Pickle, uh dog and I'm tidying up the last of my admin before painting this afternoon. Daddy's still not well. He went to the office for a couple of hours yesterday and may go in this afternoon but at present is upstairs but with the games on the TV I think that's the Olympics to keep him company bronchitis is a serious illness and will take its time to go away completely does him no harm to have this time off either. He carries the whole show all the time here is the recipe for the blackcurrant mousse. You can use either frozen or bottled blackcurrants, or even your own, fresh in the summer. It serves six. 450 grams of blackcurrants, 175 grams of caster sugar, three eggs separated, 15 grams of powdered gelatin, three tablespoons of water, the juice of half a lemon, 150 ml of whipping cream whipped, and then it goes on and explains how you do it. So there you are. That's just a, a and you go, it go It's 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 part of actually a much longer of a much longer letter mm. and um, I love this idea of recipes being buried mm. in other correspondence that as a historian you might stumble oh, so yeah. you might be reading a letter yeah. and then you stumble across a recipe or you do it the other way around in that respect so you're yeah. looking for a recipe but you stumble across a window into the past.
1: I mean it's about, it's about transmission as well it's about mechanisms of transmission how how are recipes passed on I mean that's in, a, in an email yep. you know you might pass a recipe on by hand you might talk, you know, tell somebody about it. They then write it down. Correspondence is a really common way um, that recipes survive. I mean, I've, I've worked on correspondence for years and it, they crop up all the time. Mm. Um, but I think one of the things I wanted to just talk about very briefly was the survival of historical recipes. Yeah, They survive in an extraordinary number. If you're interested in this in any way one of the really good starting places is the welcome trust library. Okay. Go online and um so welcome library collections, digital collections, recipe books and they have digitised all their holdings, food recipes, food and the welcome is is all about medicine. Uh, okay. So so they've got medical and culinary recipes <coughs> throughout the ages from the 16th to 19th century. These are domestic manuscripts. And the library holds they say unrivaled collections mm. of these, and you can just click on this and read through they 've got notes that it, it enables you to um, look at food history, domestic medicine, scientific experimentation, women as medical practitioners, herbal practice, you look at um, manuscript and print culture, local and national economic frameworks, recipes as autobiographies i did a I did a really, really simple search on Devon heritage mm-hmm. center and I got up fifty four hits I just put into there online this is our local record office in Exeter I just put in the word recipes fifty four hits including recipes early 20th century loose papers found with recipe contains booklet on cans canned, f- canned foods and wartime catering and a booklet on milk recipes so you can get into you know how people you know, cooked during the Second World War at a time of rationing. Milk and, recipes, yeah. So if you don't have if you don't have milk, so the way in which you'd cook with powdered milk. Ah, I see. Wow. Um, then an eighteenth-century recipe for the stone. So if somebody's got gallstone, how you get rid of that? Wow. There's a folder of nineteenth-century household recipes. Um, there is uh, notes on estate and household matters with recipes from the Fortescue family. There's recipes concerned with plague, rickets, gout, worms. There's a Barnstable cookery book from nineteen fourteen, a book of tried and trusted recipes. There's a 1726 book of directions for Captain Wheatley's Wheatley's Lady hmm. being manuscript recipes. I mean you know, and if you go into any record office or live you know research library in the country and you look through family and household collections Yeah, you will come up with masses and masses of stuff I've just um, typed in recipe yep. to the catalogue of the National Archives Oh,
0: <laughs> I bet you've got s- several thousand hits oh, Wow, there's a whole lifetime of stuff here um, and in all sorts of wonderful private collections. Lancashire Archives, the Norfolk Record Office, the Ironbridge Gorge Museum, Library and Archives. Oh, that's a good one. They'd make really good pies, the Derby family. Miscellaneous items on food. Derbyshire Record Office, Cornwall Record Office, the Cumbria Archive Centre, Hello Cumbria Archive Centre, the Museum of English Rural Life, the Centre for Buckinghamshire Studies. They are all out. Somerset Heritage Centre, the Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent Archive Service. My goodness, me. See, it's
1: amazing how common this. These... Yes.
0: And I mean, it's extraordinary you'd assume they'd all be about food, but they're not. Here you are in the Lincolnshire archives. In J. E. Sandars' papers, eighteen ninety to ninety one, is a recipe for treating worms in horses. Yep. Um, we've got uh, more food things, medical and culinary in their business as carpenters. Ah, oh, wonderful stuff. The Leeds University Library. I want to go and look at all of these.
1: I mean, and, and also I think the the idea that is, I think is important to make is that it's not all about cooking. No. And it is about all all manner of things. I've got just a few early modern recipes, so seventeenth, 16th, 17th century uh, recipes here. The first is from an English recipe book, uh, which gives a sweet smelling recipe for a perfume to burn. Take two ounces of the powder of juniper, benjamin and storax each. One ounce, six drops of oil of clothes, ten grains of musk. Beat all these to a paste with a little gum dragon steeped in rose or orange flower water, and roll them up like big peas, and flat them, and dry them in a dish in the oven or sun, and keep them. For they must be put in on a coal of shovels, and they will give a pleasing smell. Mm. The other one, and this is one of my favourites. Have you ever heard of stink bait? Yes, we talked about. We this talked before. about stink bait before. What is it? Is it something stink with bait fishing? Is something that is it's it's a stinky. Uh, s- substance that you that you create and you throw it out into the water yeah. as you're fishing and it attracts oh, yes. all the fish. And there's a recipe in a book uh, called Ink, Stinkbait and Revenge mm. and Queen Elizabeth by a couple of friends of mine, Steve May and Arthur Marotti. Uh, it's a, a Yorkshire Elizabethan Yorkshire yeoman's household book and it's got several recipes in this. Um, take worms and lay them in a dish all night and of the morrow When they have purged all the earth clean, take the yolk of an egg, wheat flour, sweet, and strain them together and let them lie till you go to fish. Now, presumably, uh, rotten worms stewed with off egg and wheat flour were irresistible to Elizabethan fish. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's wonderful. I like the idea of um,
0: comedy recipes. Oh, um, they come in all sorts of forms. There's there's the, <laughs> the, the classic sort of spoonful of love and a pinch of patience. Yes, you know the, you, you get these um, often in, in kitchens of cottages is how I imagine it. You know mm. how to how to survive a marriage. It's that <laughs> kind of thing. Anyway, the, um, my my favourite one, of course, is uh, comes from the maritime and naval historical world. Before I go on about this, you have to understand what a hola podrida is. Do you know what it is? No. Okay, so it's like, it's like a Spanish version of a cassoulet, oh. but a bit, a bit more full on, all right? Um, it literally means rotten bowl.
1: Ooh. Um, mm.
0: And it's a fairly serious meal, all right? <laughs> Check out this.
1: And is this made up or is this genuine? Genuinely true. this Genuinely is a, This true. is a
0: traditional Spanish right. stew. Okay, right. very, very calorific.
1: Right. right. You have a bowl it's of like this, that so cheese you, with maggots in you it. You don't
0: need to eat for the rest right. of the week. You start off with a mild 300 grams of haricot beans, then 500 grams of other beans, one pig's ear, one trotter, half a kilo of marinated pork ribs, three blood sausages, three chorizos, full chorizos, half a kilo of ox meat, one hen, one duck, one quail, 250 grams of lamb on a piece of bacon, 100 grams of chicken liver and gizzards, and then a load of veg, onion, leeks, green pepper, cabbage, carrots, celery, garlic bulbs, bay leaf, flour, olive oil and salt. That is called the Ola Podrida. And, um, yeah, that's pretty... It's making me feel so hungry.
1: <laughs> it's a fairly
0: serious meal, isn't it? Yes, So, um, very. here we are. This is this is what it was... Um, have you heard of the Battle of Cape St. Vincent? Yes. Right, 1797. Top of my head. I think I might have got that wrong. No, fe- February 1797. Um, I'll trust you on that one. Royal Navy uh, fighting the Spanish. So the Spanish have just joined in with the French Revolutionary War. And they're coming back from... Um, Ooh, uh, Central America with a cargo of mercury. Again, this is, I'm fairly grasping at straws here, it's been some time since I wrote the definitive book on it (laughs) and I've forgotten everything. (laughs)
1: Uh, <coughs> but people people can read your
0: book right yeah, and can. get the definitive if you want to actually know about this from someone who really knows what they're talking about um get my book in the hour of victory very good book okay um so uh nelson it's, it's basically when nelson gets onto the the sort of the, the international stage as, as a particularly courageous man he captures two massive spanish warships and he described his actions in the battle because he knew that the um, admiral of the British fleet, John Jarvis, was always rather sort of reticent in his willingness to be colourful in his descriptions. His, his uh, Jarvis's letters back to the Admiralty are mind-blowingly dull. So after the battle, Nelson wrote to his wife, Fanny Nelson, and um, he wrote this comedy recipe which he described as Nelson's art of cooking Spaniards. (laughs) You take a first rate and an 80-gun ship and after well-battering and basting them for an hour, keep moving in your force balls and be sure to let these be well-seasoned. Your fire must never slacken for a moment but must be kept up as brisk as possible during the whole time. So soon as you perceive your Spaniards to be well-stewed and blended together, you must throw your own ship on board the two-decker. Back your spritzel yard "'to her mast, then skip to her quarter-gallery window, "'sword in hand, and let the rest of your boarders follow as they can. "'The moment that you appear on the 80-gun ship, "'quarter-deck the Spaniards will all throw down their arms and fly. "'You will then only have to take a hop, skip and jump from your stepping stone, "'and you will find yourself in the middle of the first-rate quarter-deck, "'with all the dons at your feet. "'Your ola podrida may now be considered completely dished "'and fit to be set before his majesty.'" brilliant it's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. fantastic brilliant. So so um, I'm sure that that is not the only example of it I can't believe that Nelson well maybe maybe, maybe Nelson invented the comedy recipe uh, I doubt it though I reckon that um, there is a wonderful history Mind of Jonathan
1: of, Swift's modest proposal which is about boiling babies oh really yeah, as a way of curing, about curing, curing hunger ah. Um but um yeah If someone finds out about the boiling baby thing and get in touch with it, that would
0: be wonderful. So um, yeah, that's that's my take on it. That's what I would do. I think I would look into good, good, good. I would look into the history of comedy recipes.
1: Excellent. Well, I mean, I was struck by to go back to what you were talking about earlier on with your 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 own family recipes. I think what's interesting and what I have worked on for for a couple of years is uh, historical family recipes uh, for the. I suppose um late 15th through to the 18th century. Um and these are extraordinary um extraordinary volumes um that often that have a central place within the household are often owned by women are often passed from one woman to the next generation um and you can trace sort of often sort of whole sort of you know a whole sort of couple of centuries of female owners. Uh, different types of handwriting throughout, so you can see who has been writing in yep. it it 's been passed on from one to another. You can see the kinds of things they 're interested in, the kinds of roles that they have within the family yep. so they are women are often very much involved in the medical life of the family you know we 're talking pre uh, sort of professionalization of, of of medicine here or it's you know, there's some there 's some overlap. women would have always been uh, practitioners within the household. Um, you know, looking after the interests of, of the family. These books are also compendious in that they, they often at the, at the beginning will include notes of births and deaths. So they're, they're these sort of big sort of practical volumes. Um, you, they also often talk about where recipes have come from. So you can have a look at the transmission of knowledge. So how do, you know, which is very interesting about how, thinking about how do women who are not trained medically in a formal way acquire medical knowledge? Yeah. And how does that, how do those, how does that knowledge get passed around? And some of it is book taught, some of it is, is sort of, um, it's oral tradition, some of it is passed around in, in manuscript. And one of the most wonderful collections that I've worked on is a, is a collection just down the road at the record office here in the Fortescue Manuscripts. Um, to do with um, a mother and daughter, Margaret Boxcowan, who's a Cornish gentlewoman. Uh, died Related in, to Admiral died, died in, Yes, yes. Wife, husband? Died, uh, uh, husband sorry. Wife, mother? Early. early daughter? It's, she died in 1688. Ah. So... OK. So that, we, that it would be... as it, She's married to a, an MP, but also her daughter, Bridget Fortescue of Devon. Um, we know about them because they're correspondence between them survives. We know that Bridget suffered from scrofula. We've talked about scrofula we have, when we looked at hands, hands yeah. um, and the royal, the royal touch. So she had this sort of um, this, the king's evil, so these sort of sores on her neck and head and while she was young, her mother uh, collected uh, these recipes for her to cure the king's evil. I think she was the great-grandmother of the famous Admiral Edward Buscoen. Good, I'm sure Very she well. was. I've just of that out. Excellent, thank you. And one of these recipes, which is on a loose scrap of paper, is called the glister. Take mallows, pelletry of the wall, violet and mercury leaves, of each one handful of posset drink, and one quart boil these, strain it, take somewhat less than a pint, add to it two ounces of brown sugar and two ounces of syrup of violets, and so make it warm. Glister as it is here set down the things that I appoint myself, but only the manner and time and measures for mine own good, though the doctors here think it best for me to believe them against my own sense. So in a sense, she's not only just recording this, she's also debating with the doctor's advice. But this manuscript survives within a massive collection of other things. They've got here several um, complete recipe books... So and and tiny little um, manuscript volumes as well, and then they've got a whole bunch of what a, what I would describe as manuscript separates. Manuscript separates are basically individual recipes, which is quite rare to have, and they are in all kinds of sort of scrappy bits of handwriting. So you get this sense that they've accumulated them from all over. One of the most touching things about this. And this is how you sort of breathe a kind of an emotional life, emotional history into what can be very sort of dry material. You know, rather like you reading out your mother's description, the correspondence that frames the the recipe, you get this sort of sense of of the sort of personalities in them. And one of the most touching things is that the mother, Margaret, died of breast cancer. Mm. There are collections of recipes to treat breast cancer. That are sort of that are organized into a tiny little pile. Um and I think what happened was the mother's recipe collection then passed on to her daughter, and they survive within the Fortescue papers, and the daughter has gone through and organized these, put them into some kind of order. Um so you get the sense that, you know, maybe she was looking after her, you know, mother during a, you know, particularly Savage yeah. illness, mm. um, but it, but it, yeah, but it, it, absolutely fascinating. I mean, it enables. A, what the cures were for breast cancer? Ointments, probably something like that. I, can't, yeah. I, I was looking for them on my laptop last night, looking for photographs, and I have, um, I filed them somewhere. I, I can't find them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, like, I really don't know very much about medical history at all, but I presume that there's a kind of balance between ointments and. Topical, rubbing on creams and things, and ingesting, isn't there?
1: And I wonder to what extent. Also, you know, using things that are pretty. I mean, with this, with the King's Evil, you know, using mercury, pretty. You know, you're dealing with pretty serious stuff there. Yeah, yeah. A
0: lovely example. I like that. Yes. Uh, I'm going to read you a recipe now, and I want you to guess what it's for. Okay. You. Oh, if you do that,
1: I've got one for you. (laughs)
0: And you guys can, if you're listening to this podcast, I want you to play the game. Um, You might be walking around in the middle of a town, you might be walking out in a field, but I want you to shout out (laughs) what you think the recipe's for. Okay. Take equal amounts of sulfur, rock salt, ashes, thunderstone, and pyrite and pound fine in a black mortar at midday sun. Also in equal amounts of each ingredient, mix together black mulberry resin and Zakynthian asphalt, the latter in a liquid form and free-flowing, resulting in a product that is sooty-coloured. Then add to the asphalt the tiniest amount of quicklime, but because the sun is at its zenith, one must pound it carefully and protect the face, or it will ignite suddenly. When it catches fire, one should seal it in some sort of copper receptacle. In this way, you will have it available in a box without exposing it to the sun. I've got it. It's saltpeter. Is uh, it gunpowder? No, it's not. No. Oh. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was feeling so smug having got that. It's not. No. So saltpeter Ooh. is a is an ingredient of gunpowder. Right. And no, it's not. Any other idea? It's, it's certainly flammable and dangerous. Fireworks? No. I can't think. Okay, it's something called Greek fire. Greek f- oh, Ooh, yes. so okay,
1: fire. Oh, yes. yeah. So looking back to the... Like napalm. Yes.
0: So Greek fire is... Uh, I mean, it, it, it has a, a long and troubled history. Mm. Uh, but basically it becomes super famous with, with, in Byzantium. Yeah. Um, around about 1000 a, a A.D. Right. Um, so the eastern part of the Roman Empire that was. yeah. And they developed this thing called Greek fire, uh, which burns underwater, on water, and in fact the flames uh, are made usually wider and taller by water. So right. it's the opposite. So it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant and very, very dangerous weapon to use for naval warfare in particular. Goodness me. But here's the interesting thing about it. That's one description of how to make Greek fire. Uh, and it, it What's the date of it? A, uh, the third century. Right. Oh, That's gosh. the third century. Okay. Now, um, Greek fire's a great example because there are all sorts of other recipes for Greek fire, and they're all completely different, and we still have no idea how they made it, which oh, I like. We, so should, we should try it. No, try and make <laughs> Greek fire in the bath. <laughs> yeah, we've okay. got, got a problem. So anyway, there are there are some examples in history which I'm fascinated by because we don't know. No recipe actually survives, or the recipes that do survive are inaccurate, this was written, um, and it was a, it was a guess. This was a Roman yeah. author basically guessing or having a go at it um, and when we 've recreated all of the various recipes for Greek fire, none of them worked and it, well, it partially explains why western English French German armies and navies couldn 't recreate it and it 's still it's one of those enduring historical mysteries, so please get in touch if you know of other examples. In which the recipe doesn't actually exist anymore. Isn't its Isn't? Isn't that Roman fish sauce? There's a Roman fish, very famously disgusting Roman fish sauce that the Romans ate on everything called garum, was right, it? Right, right. Um, again, I'm mm. talking off the top of my head. Um, but I, I suspect that's one. I think it's a completely yes. kind of revolting thing made yep. out of anchovy guts and yes. brains and mm. stuff. But the Romans had it on everything. But I don't think. The recipe survived. The recipe survived. Mm. But it was like, it was. It was every, It was like ketchup, but I, I don't think... Stinky it, it's ketchup. A great, stinky <laughs> Roman ketchup.
1: Yeah, stinky Roman ketchup. Your, 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 your talk of um, experimenting in, <laughs> in the bathtub um, reminds me of um, my two daughters, who at the moment are, love experimenting uh, making bath bombs. Ah. And I was babysitting... Uh, making their own ones. Making their own ones. I was, exper- I was babysitting uh, my six-year-old and, uh, and a, an older friend yesterday uh, for the day because... Um, for some reason, their school doesn't go back um, about a week longer than um, than than other schools, and my six-year-old came to me, came downstairs while I was working, and said, "Daddy, could you just come upstairs a minute? Um, there's a," and she said, um, um, my friend um is putting paint in the sink, <laughs> and her idea of how to add colour to a bath bomb, so they'd got um they they basically got my shaving cream, and shaving gel and." Um, they'd put some soap in there and they'd put some shampoo and they'd put some conditioner in it and then had gone to my daughter's paint box and taken a tub of pink paint and just squirted it. The place was just covered in pink. It worked. Um, It actually worked. They froze it. What I like about that example is that
0: you've got a six-year-old girl's idea of what ingredients are available yep. in the world in the to house. make something yes. happen. Yes. Um, and that says a great deal about education. Yes. Uh, it's, that's yes. fascinating. I'm really into yep. that now. So if yep. you, oh, this is, I'm really, I want to do all sorts of things. So you basically suggest to kids, can you make this? And, and see what they come up with, yes. to see what they think w- 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 is an available my, my eldest creative used, ingredient. Used,
1: my eldest loves baking, and she's eight now. But when she was about six, she refused to use a recipe. Mm. And so she would try and make cakes and would just use, would use her, yeah. her kind of just knowledge of how flour and eggs and milk and sugar all went together. Were they
0: edible? Because my daughter made what she called well, spicy cakes. And they were they had the whole purpose was she'd anything de- she wanted They were delicious.
1: Mmm. some of them were, re- <laughs> the were actually really, really good. She used to make bread. And then, and sort of, end, with paint and paint made, in it. ended up not with painting it, <laughs> but ended up making a kind of a, a, almost with no recipe, w- almost a focaccia style bread. It was quite heavy, yeah, because she hadn't put any yeast in and it hadn't proved, but it was, but it and it had sort of tomato in it and, and olive and you know stuff. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. I have a recipe for you. See if you can tell what All this right. is. Take half a pint of water, a pint wanting a quarter of wine, and as much vinegar which being mixed together, make a quart and a quarter of a pint more. Then take six ounces of galls beaten into small powder and sifted through a sieve. Put this powder into a pot by itself and pour half the water, wine and vinegar into it. Likewise, take four ounces of vitriol and beat it into a pounter and put it also in a pot by itself. Whereinto, put a quarter of the wine, water and the vinegar that remaineth, and in and to the other quarter, put four ounces of gum arabic beaten to powder. That done. Cover the three pots close and let them stand three or four days together, stirring them every day three or four times. On the first day, set the pot with galls on the fire. And when it begins to seethe, stir it about till it be thoroughly warm. Then strain it through a cloth into another pot and mix it with the other two pots, stirring them well together and being covered Then let it stand three days till thou meanest to use it on the fourth day when it is settled. Pour it out and it will be good blank. (laughs) If there remain any dregs behind, pour some rain water that hath stand long in a tub or vessel into it. For the older water is the better it is and keep that until you make more blank. So it is better than clean water.
0: How could, how does anyone come up with that? It's an unbelievably complicated recipe.
1: It is. Imagine how many times
0: someone would have tried to have made that and then just got one of those tiny steps wrong, and then it's ice rubbish. I know. Like, oh, I, rubbish. know, I, know. <laughs> um, I think that is. Oh my god! Um, if it helps, it's from do you um, eat it? a book
1: of secrets.
0: Do you eat it or not? No, no. Do you chew it? There's nothing. You don't no. put it in your mouth at no. all. No, no. Okay. Book of secrets. Do you give up? No, I never give up. I'm going to get this. Is it something you put on your face? No.
1: Hmm. Think about the kinds of things that I've researched and I'm interested in, and <laughs> mm. various. But um, so my first book, first big book, was ooh, on.
0: Oh, oh, oh! Is it? Is it ink? Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: yes! Well done! Very good! High five! Yes, mm. very good. And there are loads of. I mean, one of the most common recipes that you come across in the early modern period is not the sort of medical stuff. It is ink. That's amazing. Every absolutely everywhere. Absolutely everywhere.
0: No I love that. Um, Is that a wrap? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Let's leave it there with an inky full stop. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Please do it. really, really helps. Subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam
1: Willis, And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on unexpected pod we are proud we are truly Mm. proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other fantastic shows and you can find out more about
0: what we've got planned in the forthcoming months show notes video clips photos of everything we discuss and much much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected bye bye